This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And my guest today is Sally Kempton. Sally, thank you so much for being with me today. Chris, it is a pleasure. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to read your bio really quick before we jump into our conversation. Uh, Sally Kempton is a powerful teacher of applied spiritual wisdom known for her capacity to kindle meditative states in others and to help students work with meditative experience as a framework for practical life change. She teaches teleclasses, retreats, and workshops and is on the faculty at Esalon and Kripalu. Sally is the author of the best-selling book, Awakening Shakti, The Transformative Power of the Yoga Goddesses and Meditation for the Love of It, which Spirituality and Health magazine called The Meditation Book Your Heart Wants to Read. Her audio program, Doorways to the Infinite, The Art and Practice of Tantric Meditation, was recently released by Sounds True. A former Swami in a Vedic tradition, Sally has been practicing and teaching for over four decades. Her teachings combine profound knowledge of the texts of yoga and tantra with practical wisdom from contemporary psychology and integral thought. Her website is sallykempton.com, where her books and CDs are available. Again, Sally, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Chris. It's really it's really great to be in this conversation. Thanks. I appreciate it. I see we have a wardrobe change. Very nice. <laughs> um, I look down, I look up, and here you are. You're, you're very magical like that. So... I wanted to start out, before we dive into, I think a lot of this conversation today is going to talk about um, the, the, the Divine Feminine, which is the work you're probably most well known for. But before we get into that, just in case there's any listeners or viewers that aren't familiar with your backstory, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about what brought you to the path, you know, what was your path, what did it look like? Just just a, a little bit about that. Sure. It's a long story, of course. Like yeah, We've like, got time. <laughs> uh, I was a journalist in New York. I grew up in a typical left-wing humanist family in, uh, in the East Coast. My father was a journalist, and I, I became a journalist. I, was, I went to work for the Village Voice. I was a uh, columnist for Esquire, not a columnist, a, a feature writer for Esquire for a while. And I, I actually had a kind of awakening sitting in my living room, listening to a record, Grateful Dead record. And uh, 
and I, the awakening was a, an experience of complete overwhelming love. Mm. So, which of course I had no way of holding and no way of, of really putting in a framework with the rest of my life. But it was utterly clear to me that this was, this was it. Mm. This was, this is why I was alive. This is how I wanted to be. So I was then faced with the issue of trying to deal with my unruly mind, my, you know, my professional confusion, all the other things that, you know, that a person in their twenties has to deal with, with a sudden spiritual awakening. And in those days there was really no channel for it. Um, uh, helpfully enough, and I give this with an enormous shout out to Ramdas. Uh, at that time, he had just come back from India, and they, and they were playing tapes of his on a sh- on a show called Lunch Pail that a friend of mine had on the radio. And so I he I, he actually provided the first moments of spiritual education for me. But within a year, I was working with a Western spiritual group, and then about two years after that, I I had a what I would now describe as a, as a very huge Kundalini awakening, mm. a lot of energy and power, uh, feeling as though it was descending from some other realm, which was kind of unnerving for me. Sure. And at the same time, the name of a teacher, Swami Muktananda, who yeah. had just come to, the, to this country. So to make a very long story mm. short, I went to meet him. Uh, I had a kind of instant recognition. I literally walked in the door and and the words came to my mind, this is what I was born for. Wow. And, and began to, uh, took a several retreats with him, ended up joining him on his American tour in 1974, mm. and uh, spent the last eight years of his life with him. I, uh, I edited his books, and um, for, for several years I was his press secretary. And then he, he gave me initiation into sannyas, made me a swami, just before he died. And uh, and I was a swami for 20 years. And then in 2002, uh, I realized that for you know for many reasons, my path, my work, actually demanded that I go out, go leave that the ashram context. I had been teaching there for about 20 years. Wow. And you know, and just be part of the life that I was counseling people on. And uh, so I left. I began teaching independently. I wrote a column called Wisdom for Yoga Journal for about 10 years. Yeah. I wrote a couple of books. And I'm, I, teach, uh, I, I teach a lot on Kashmir Shaivism, the, the non-dual tantric. Um, one of the, the, really the very great non-dual tantric traditions and uh, try to make it as applicable as possible to you and me. So can you tell me a little bit about that tradition? Yeah, Kashmir Shaivism, which is, it, it, you know, if we were going to get scholarly about it, yeah. Kashmir Shaivism is kind of a misnomer. It's a, it's a tradition that, is, that actually is pan-Indian, and you, you can find it in Taoism. You can find it in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a foundational look at the universe in which... The understanding is that this is a completely non-dual universe. Right. Every atom, every particle, every everything, and idea, and and uh, potential that exists is completely inundated with and comes out of divine consciousness. Which, and this is, I think, 
the, you know, the way it, the way it is useful to people studying Eastern religions and mystical Christianity, that there, there's an understanding in this tradition that there is an, you know, an absolute formless, silent, right. almost knowable aspect of that supreme consciousness. And then there's a dynamic playful aspect of it, which is what creates all this and continues to dance as, you know, cells and planets and human brains and the evolutionary experience that we go through physically and in terms of evolution of consciousness. So it's a, it's a, you know, what I would call completely uh, full service, non-dual tradition. In other words, it, and it, and the, the reason I think that, that Shaiva Tantra or non-dual Shaiva Tantra called Shaiva because the, the name of the divine that is used most commonly is Shiva and the name of the divine feminine <clears throat> aspect is Shakti. Um, but it, it's a tradition that it utterly sacralizes all of life. Uh, you know, in, in many of the Eastern traditions, we say that the world is illusion, that the only reality is the formless consciousness. In the non-dual Shaiva tradition, the understanding is that the world is Shakti, the world is the dynamic, energetic, feminine aspect, mm. absolute consciousness. So there's no aspect of life that can't be a doorway into divine consciousness. And uh, that, I think, is if, you know, for, if you're going to have a religious tradition that, that, that combines the sacred and the practical, it's perhaps the most comprehensive. It sounds beautiful. I, uh... Yeah, I tradition yeah that's one i i am not uh as read up on as you're speaking i realize i should be um it's very beautiful um have now your your book that i mentioned or that we talked about in your bio awakening shakti the transformative power of the yoga goddesses that's one i read years ago um and unfortunately it's in canada and i'm in the u.s right now so i didn't get to brush up on it before we talked but do you talk about the tradition in that book i do okay the, the the basis of the way I understand the divine feminine is in non-dual Shaivism. In other words, you, you can't understand the divine feminine without without recognizing the relationship between, you know, what we could call the divine feminine and the divine masculine. In other words, it's not a hierarchical, um, you know, top-down relationship. In in the Shaiva tradition, Shiva Shakti are two sides of the same divine reality. One is still and, uh, and transcendent, and the other is playful and imminent. Right. So, so the, the tradition of Shaivism basically uh, holds that, you know, along with this physical world and, and the, you know, the world of, of the ever-present awareness, the ever-present awareness love, there are also actually probably millions of subtle worlds that that are all around us that we are not you know that we're mostly not able to see the way we can't hear the frequencies that dogs hear uh, and that among these beings who you know who simply exist in you know in the cells and molecules of the universe there are there are energies deity energies who who occupy a very subtle sphere and who also uh, have their their place in human personality because in a non-dual tradition um ken ken always says it's turtles all the way up turtles all the way down <laughs> but that that there's it, the human being 
according to this tradition and according to my experience, actually contains within ourselves really all worlds, all powers, everything is accessible within us. And in the same way, these deity energies who, who are particular vortexes of energy that we experience in the cosmos that are very apparent to us when we look at the way the universe works, they also exist inside the personality and inside our own energy systems. And, and this is, I think, very radical to postmodern people. Oh, yeah. they, al- they also have a, what we could call an objective reality, uh, a subtle reality in which they have forms, uh, names, sounds, mantras that you can use to invoke them. Mm. And, uh, and an entire science of, of what's sometimes called deity yoga, in which we practice enlarging our capacity for experiencing our own divinity by invoking deity energies and really coming to see that that we have these energies within ourselves so that's the that's the short version i love it so so to elaborate maybe let's let's take kali as an example can you talk about how kali would be used or is there another goddess you'd prefer to talk about uh, well, no, Kali is a great goddess to talk about because she is the one of the Hindu goddesses that everybody knows. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, I, I would just say one thing, that one of the questions that comes up, you know, when we Westerners are talking about Hindu goddesses is why Hindu goddesses? Why Hindu deities? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's obviously not a part of our Western tradition. And as, you, you know, Jung, who, as you may know, went to India... Yeah. So many of his ideas were Eastern ideas. He went to India. He freaked out, as so many, so many Westerners do, just at the sheer, you know, enormity of the culture, and uh, you know, and the many heads and arms of the deities. Right. And he said, Westerner can understand India, so no Westerner can really be at home in Indian culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, the Indian yoga and system deity systems aren't suitable for Westerners. Um, well, of course, everything has changed, yeah. partly because of the Indian diaspora, you know that that and so the fact that so many Westerners for fifty or a hundred years have been deeply immersing themselves in Indian culture. Yeah. But the deeper reason why I I feel that the Hindu deities are so helpful to us and why so many so many people in the yoga world find themselves drawn to deity practice is because in this tradition. These deities have been invoked, loved, worshipped for generations and generations, and they're alive. In other words, you can go to you can go to a home or a temple in India, and you can feel the energy there because so many people have been calling on these energies in such a concentrated way, which yeah. which is you know not true of even though there are other ancient Western deity forms that that you know that are not. That are not Jehovah or Allah, you know, but that are <clears throat> that are more, let's say, more accessible uh, forms. Nonetheless, the the tradition of invoking them, loving them, being in contact with them, has pretty much died out mm. since ancient times. So they're they're much more, you know, they're much more useful as Jung and the Jungians use the Greek deity forms. They're much more accessible as psychological archetypes, uh, not so much as, you know, as doorways into, into what I would call light realms, which in my experience, the Indian deities are. So, 
so Kali, who's a you know a, has become an extremely popular icon in the West, uh, who I think in the contemporary world, especially for women, often stands for the you know the untamed feminine, the the woman who is who is not hiding her sexuality, not hiding her anger. And in that sense, for a lot of Western women, Kali has become kind of a kind of an archetype of feminine shadow. Mm. Um, and she's a very shadowy goddess in many respects. But so Kali, as a, you know, most people know the iconography, she's, she's shown as a more or less naked young woman. Most of the icons of Kali show her as being about 16 years old with full breasts, wearing a necklace of skulls, uh, carrying a, a bloody meat cleaver in one hand, a severed head in another, uh, and you know, surrounded in the in the pictures I have by the you know the bodies of dead because she's just in the you know in the traditional uh, story of Kali, she's she manifests in the middle of a battle between the light and dark forces and destroys thousands and thousands of demons, uh, and they're that there, there are quite a few stories about her as a demon-slaying goddess. Mm. But what is interesting to me about Kali is that she started out as, you know, in, in the tradition as kind of a marginal figure whom you went to in, you know, if you were looking for the power to kill your enemies or some other, uh, you know, sort of warlike boon. And she gradually took on the position of the great mother, of the divine mother. So for instance, great great sages like Ramakrishna literally regarded Kali as mother, mm-hmm. as the mother goddess, and saw her compassion and her, her beauty. Uh, so she's a goddess who incarnates the qualities, that, all the qualities of life and death. You know, she's, she's, uh, she's the goddess of dissolution, of destruction, She's also of all the feminine deities. She's the one who who's invoked most often to just take away all the strings that tie you to to your egoic life. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the her her teaching or her gift is that as she dissolves the that is that which is unnecessary, kind of takes you down to the bone of who you really are. You then become able to really experience your own largeness to experience your true self. Mm. And, you know, and it, it, so that in her most esoteric form, Kali is the, is the great void into which everything dissolves. Uh, so she's, she's a multi-layered goddess and, uh, and one whom we invoke, we should invoke uh, only when we're fairly serious. Nice, <laughs> <Yes>, sure. <laughs> this is my experience. Sure. So... You know, as we're talking about divine feminine, um, there's often the misperception. You hear the word feminine right there and, you know, automatically, oh, it's for women. And you obviously talk quite a bit uh, about, no, it's, that's not the case at all. It is, there's masculine qualities. It is for men as well. So I would love if you can talk a bit uh, to that. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I think first of all, the, the, the core of, there are two things, um, in India, divine feminine practice is called shakta, mm-hmm. meaning you know, that your understanding is that shakti, that the, the cosmic and dynamic energy is the source of everything in the universe. And the, the basic understanding behind it is that 
that the mass, divine masculine and divine feminine are utterly intertwined. You know, the, the, on the cosmic level, there's no gender separation. There's only this vast androgynous, you know, transcendent beingness. Mm. And therefore, men as well as women are shakti. You know, it's our gendering, which is part of the peculiarity of this planet, um, where reproduction takes place in most cases between uh, between a masculine and a feminine gendered uh, sperm and ovum. Apparently, not so, not true in other in other life forms. Uh, but so the, the qualities of the divine feminine according to the tantric tradition, are energy, power, love, the capacity for wisdom, the, the energy that gives you liberation, um, all worldly success, anything you want in life, is in the hands of Shakti, is in the hands of the divine feminine. Mm. So naturally, in the tradition, men as well as women, in fact, as far as I can see, men more than women uh, invoked the divine feminine Usually, with the with the understanding that the goddess is a mother, she's she loves her boys. You know, she's she wants to give you anything you ask for. So, so most of the literature that we have from the traditions about goddess are was written by men. It it has not been traditionally, at least in India, a, a feminine tradition, or that is the feminine. You know, there is a whole woman's tradition of worship, but it's not so mainstream as the, um, you know, let's call it the, the male goddess tradition. Sure. <laughs> as we used to say, the male left back in the early days of the woman's <laughs> So, um, I've given these, when I started giving goddess classes, I, I was giving them mainly in yoga studios, and of course there would be 50 women there and three men. And what would happen is that the men would come up to me afterwards and normally either they were the owner of the studio or the husband of the owner of the studio and his two pals. And they would say, gosh, I thought this was going to be one of those, you know, women's work practices that I couldn't go to. But in fact, what happens when, when men start to recognize the feminine as a divine quality in themselves, they realize that, that there are these energies inside them that are that that are very close to them that are very intimate with them which are goddess energies which are feminine energies in other words aspects of of our strength aspects of our capacity for perseverance and magic all the magic that we experience inside ourselves the sort of miraculous unfoldings you know of of, of the work we do mm. uh, of our dreams and ambitions you start to realize that that energy which makes them happen is divine feminine energy. So the divine feminine is very, very intimately a part of every one of us. Mm. And it's an alternative to the idea that that a man for nurturance and love and acceptance has to go to a woman, and a woman, in order for strength, has to go to a man. Right. Uh, it, you know, so it's, a, it's actually a deeply integrative understanding to see that the masculine... And the feminine are defined very differently in this tradition. The masculine being the witness, the witness, the pure consciousness, the pure awareness. The feminine being pretty much everything else, right? <laughs> so, including, including the you know the ma the male body and the male you know the 
classical male temperament. They're all uh, they're engineered by and powered by Shakti. <laughs> so it, it's a it's a twin men learn this. Um, not only does it give them more respect for women, sure, it's always a good thing, but but really more comfort with with their own vulnerability and with the connection of strength with vulnerability. Yeah. So let me ask you, I mean, I know that that's a whole path uh, in, in and of itself to, to, you know, take that on. Is there, say there's a, a man watching or listening to this and they're curious and interested in getting a little more in touch with their divine feminine. Is there a meditation or a visualization or a practice that they could begin with, say, today? You know, they're done listening and they want to get a little more in touch. Is there something that they can at least start to work with in real time? Well, I would suggest I, I have two suggestions. Sure. Is if you're if you're at all interested in or good at visualization, yeah. I would suggest the practice in which you, you close your eyes. I, I can teach you I can teach the practice. Yeah, right I now. would love you to if you don't mind. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I'd love you to. So the goddess that I would suggest and that I would work with is the goddess Lalita, who is a a, a form of the the powerful great mother goddess who's also beautiful erotic and has the you know the demon slayer side to her as well so she's she's an aspect of the feminine that is both playful uh, protective and very much uh, the feminine as the the loving attractive um, you know really the erotic force of the universe is is Quality is she's the, she's allurement itself, you know she's the she's the love energy that draws molecules together and creates uh, wholeness. So, if you want to close your eyes, and I would say gonna, this, to I'm going to do this right along with you. So yeah. So I'll, and I'll close my eyes too because it's easier to visualize. And you can imagine yourself sitting in a a very beautiful garden. And feel the way that you feel in a garden. I mean, the trees are old and they're, they're hanging over you, creating just enough shade with dappled sunlight coming through it. You're sitting on a very comfortable cushioned bench. You can smell the fragrance of flowers. There's a little breeze. And you just take a moment to seat yourself, to center yourself there. Perhaps focusing on the breath for a moment or two. And you become very aware of the beauty of the world around you. Of the way the sun sends sparkles of light onto the grass and the grove and the way the flowers are bursting with bloom and beauty and fragrance. And then you see coalescing in the air in front of you, in the grove in front of you, the form of an exquisitely beautiful woman with rosy red skin. Her skin is the color of the sunrise. She has large, luminous, lustrous eyes. She's wearing red silks draped around her body. She's carrying in one hand a sugarcane bow and in the other five arrows made of flowers. She has 
two very lustrous dark eyes and in the middle of her forehead, a vertical third eye, which is awake, which shows that she herself is radically awake to the truth of the world. And she's smiling at you. And you allow this being who can be appearing as a visual form of a beautiful woman with rosy skin or simply as a light or as a sense of presence. And notice how as you begin to invoke this goddess, you may begin to feel a certain sweetness, a certain feeling of softness, of tenderness coming into the environment. And as you gaze at her form, you realize that from her heart is coming a rosy red light, a rosy pink light. It is flowing into your heart, flowing through your chest and healing the wounds, the emotional wounds that you may have carried for lifetimes. And you allow yourself to breathe in this rosy light through the heart. and to feel it flowing through your body in whatever way you're able to hold it. And now imagine that from her third eye flows a beam of pale blue light that flows into your third eye between the eyebrows into the very center of the head and begins to bathe your brain in illumined awareness. And now you feel that from the root chakra of the goddess, from the area of the perineum, there flows a deep red light which flows into your root chakra and begins to cleanse the whole lower body of the wounds of sexual abuse, of unprocessed sexual experience, of the feelings of unrootedness, disconnection, and you feel the strength and solidity and the extraordinarily free and empowered humanness that she's sending into your lower body, moving down through your legs and feet. And so for a moment or two, you breathe with the feeling of awake awareness in the head, of profound love and healing in the heart, of power in the lower body. And then you can imagine the goddess 
dissolving into a point of light and being drawn into your own body, into your heart. Where she becomes a part of your heart And where, as you continue to invoke her, she becomes more and more an aspect of your own inner world so that you can invoke her, call upon her, feel her presence, and experience the gifts she has to fill you with, the gifts of awareness, the gifts of love, the gifts of strength, which are really in the hands of the Divine Feminine, of Shakti the power who awakens us and teaches us love. There's a mantra that goes with this form of the goddess. And it consists of Four seed syllables, seed syllable being a, a sound form that, that contains power in a very condensed way. And it, the, the syllables of this goddess, whose name is Lalita Tripura Sundari, is, which means the playful one of the three, the playful beauty of the three worlds. And the mantras are Om, Aim, Rim, Shrim. And it's followed by an invocation, Lalita Ambikaye Namaha. So it goes, Om Aim Rim Shrim Lalita Ambikaye Namaha. Om, of course, being the primordial sound. Rim uh, is an extraordinary uh, seed mantra which is said to hold within it the power of manifestation of the divine feminine, who is the, the manifester. Uh, in all worlds. Ayim is the mantra of complete creative inspiration. And Shreem carries with it the, the power of auspiciousness, of foundational goodness, of beauty. So these three mantras, the inspiration or creativity, the capacity to manifest whatever exists and whatever is needed, and the power of goodness and beauty are the three qualities, aspects of the goddess that you invoke as you invoke goddess Lalita. And so it is. Hmm. That was incredible. I've not actually done a guided visualized meditation in quite a while. And uh, thank you for that. That was truly beautiful and, and very powerful. It's, it's kind of amazing how, how present these energies are if you just allow yourself to imagine them. You know, we use right. the imagination to connect us with that in the soul, which is actually existent. And I would say waiting for us to use our imagination to get in touch with it. Yeah, absolutely yeah. beautiful. So can you, you tell me, Sally, a little bit about your own experience, as much as you're comfortable talking about, but working with the goddesses, how it's affected your life before, you know, you, you'd started working with them. And then once you started these practices and doing this, how has it transformed your life? 
Well, I would let, let me say first that this meditation and others on other yeah. forms of goddess are on my CD, Shakti Meditations. Sure, yeah. Sounds true. So if you like it, you can. Absolutely. Yes, and um, anyone that's listening or watching, we we will have that linked. So cl- just scroll down, and the link will be right there, and you can check it out. And I also want to say to parents that kids really like to meditate on goddesses, awesome. especially of course girls. Um, but I first, you know, my, my teacher was a Kundalini master, and and although he he was not he he was not a form guy. His teaching was very much, you know, the divine lives within you as you, and don't worry about these external forms. Um, nonetheless, he always referred to Kundalini, the inner, the inner transformative energy, as in, as a goddess, and you know, I would invoke the names of the great goddesses to describe Kundalini, to to help us understand the sacredness with which he viewed the awakening energy. So, um, and after he died he had had built a gigantic statue of the goddess Durga in his, in the back of his ashram. And we used to have celebrations of the, the yearly goddess festival, which is called Navaratri, which is happening right now, actually. Mm. Today is the final day of it. And <clears throat> we would have these celebrations there and they became more and more elaborate, uh, which is customary in India. And one year I was telling a story in, in, in one of these celebrations when I literally had an experience of, the goddess coming into my body and the experience was it was very it was very non-visual it was a feeling experience but it was like this exploding love and ecstasy which is one of the qualities of goddess she really is ecstasy mm-hmm. uh, you kind of you kind of don't know ecstasy until you have connected to the divine feminine um, and from that time on I, I my, I started to experience the natural world, the trees and the mountains and the ocean as being alive with a particular kind of, um, it's, you know, really I began to experience the consciousness, the awareness, the aliveness in the natural world. And to realize that trees are not dead, that trees are not insentient, that the earth is not insentient. And I realized after a while that this was, this was that there had been a kind of awakening of, the life force energy, the goddess energy inside me on this, in this event. And it just, this was in the early nineties and it, it just, it began to, uh, to kind of grow and become a natural part of my life. And at a certain point I started teaching classes on the Hindu goddesses, on the iconography. And I would find that when I, when I thought about them, you know, when I thought about the goddess Kali, or when I thought about the goddess Durga, or Lakshmi, that I would feel a particular energy and that they would uh, kind of download understanding mm-hmm. about that particular nature aspect of the world. Because the thing about the, the great goddesses is that they, they actually exist in the natural world. So storms and lightning, for example, are obviously connected with Kali. Uh, the, you know, the beauty of a garden is very connected with the goddess Lakshmi or the goddess Lalita, uh, the whole realm of inspiration, your world, my world, is is the realm of the goddess Saraswati, who is the goddess of learning and music. And if you think of it like that, you know, if you start to see the divine activity, sacred activity in, for instance, your inspirations, your capacity for speaking, you know, your appreciation of music, if you realize that these 
are not just, they're not just ordinary capacities. They are tinged with a kind of divine allurement. And that when you turn into, tune into them as, as sacred gifts, uh, as, you know, goddesses acting through you, everything you do begins to take on a sweetness and a beauty and a kind of a capacity for surrender that's, you know, that grows and grows. So that's been my experience is, is actually starting to feel that, that there are, that there's an intimacy that one can have with inner worlds Mm. that comes through, through really looking at the world as the play of the divine feminine. And, you know, and to find the divine masculine as that, that unmoving stillness, which is present, no matter how crazy the play gets. <laughs> and you were about to say something wise. No, so. that, that was absolutely beautiful. Um, absolutely beautiful. And when you, you said or, towards the beginning of that about the trees and the aliveness, it, it brought back a memory from several years ago for myself. I haven't thought about this in, in a while. Um, this is going back probably 10 years or more, but I remember I just finished the run. And at the end of my run, I like to walk a little bit just to stretch my legs out. And uh, it's in a rural area. And I'm walking down the road, and it's it's foresty. And I just spot this tree. There's nothing special about it. There's tons of trees around it. It's just a tree. And this is an experience I will never forget. And even right now as I'm thinking about it, I'm feeling it again. I just... I connected with this tree in such a way that I didn't, I didn't know how to talk about it to anyone else, but there, there was such an aliveness and, and it was a very non-dual aliveness. I felt as though I was that tree, that tree was living through me, uh, me, you know, quote unquote me, but it was just a complete oneness. Um, yeah, it was, it was incredible. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So beautiful. I, I, and the thing is about trees, I'm a tree worshiper myself, <laughs> that if you that when you connect to trees, to the plant world, there's some kind of amazing communication that can go on that that you know that opens you up to to it, that trees have a kind of a non-dual consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least they they can. Certain trees can shed this non-dual consciousness. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's just amazing to me that so many years later, I, as I was talking about it, I was feeling it like I did that day. It was really, uh, it was something else, a real, real beautiful experience. So it's just. That's, that's so beautiful. Thanks. Life. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I did want to ask you, this is now we're changing topics a little bit. We still have a little bit of time left. Um, I was looking through some of your, um, older articles you'd written, which I, I love on your website, I, and I highly encourage anyone listening or watching to visit sallykempton.com. There is so much incredible free stuff on there, aside just from your books and CDs that are available to purchase. But one of the articles um, that I wanted to share a little excerpt out of quickly, it was called Bouncing Back. And the reason I wanted to share that one is because I will often talk about um, recovery. I'm in recovery myself from drugs and alcohol, but I, I do so in a way where it's not just about drugs or alcohol. We're all recovering from something. Father Thomas Keating once made me very clear on that. He said, if you've taken this human birth, you know, he said, I'm recovering. I'm recovering from the human condition. So, 
anyways, I, I was reading Bouncing Back, and I thought that would be so applicable for the typical audience that tunes in. So if you don't mind, I'd like to share just an excerpt, and then for you to talk a little bit about it. So in the article that was written originally for a Yoga Journal called Bouncing Back, you write, When crisis arrives, some people flourish while others flounder. Here's how your practice can help you build resilience. And you go on to use the example of a woman named Gina. And you, you talk about Gina and you say, Gina was one of the golden girls of my circle, charming, smart, and seriously cool. As our other friends rode their mid-twenties on a roller coaster between elation and despair, Gina maintained an almost daunting level of emotional perspective. She gave birth to a brain-damaged child and cared for him without losing either her detachment or her sense of humor. She went through cancer surgery with her usual uh, resourceful grace. Sorry, the, the printer got a little weird on me. Then her husband fell in love with another woman and Gina fell apart. It was as if all the accumulated losses of 20 years had finally caught up with her. She cried for hours. She raged at her husband and at her life. And through it all, her friends kept saying, but she was so resilient. What happened? What happened, of course, was that Gina had hit her edge. She met the place in herself where her strength and flexibility gave out. Like Gina, most of us will hit that edge sooner or later. It is always a crucial moment because the choices we make when we meet our edge will determine our capacity for that most vital and mysterious of human qualities, resilience. So I'd love for you, if you don't mind, you know, elaborating, if you'd like to talk a little bit about finding resilience during those crucial moments, because again, I know a lot of people could certainly benefit from uh, what you have to say about that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is, it is really the, the greatest, I would say, strength that we can develop in life. Yeah. And the strange thing is I found you don't develop it. <coughs> you don't, I, I listened to that story and I wanted to cry. Mm-hmm. Just, the, the, just the way we, you know, we hold it together by, by putting on a game face, you know, and just, you know, and, and being, especially when life is going well for us and kind of refusing to recognize that we ourselves could, you know, could fall into a ditch of one kind or another. Yeah. And, but I think the thing that's most important in resilience is allowing vulnerability. In other words, what crisis can teach us if we're, if we're really able to, to receive its gifts is first the fact that everybody's vulnerable, that everybody's screwed up. You know, everybody's recovering from something. Everybody's an addict of one thing or another. And if it's not a substance, it's going to be something else. Right. So every one of us is subject to, you know, having everything that we've relied on taken away. So the first step I found for myself and other people is to is to be able to go, okay, you know, I'm I'm a vulnerable human being. I have a vulnerable body. My mind is you know, subject to to every possible form of pain and despair and confusion that a, any human being is subject to. And let me just admit my vulnerability. And from that place of really recognizing that you're human and therefore that there's a chance that all bets could be off in the next 10 minutes, <laughs> that, that from there you actually begin to develop what I consider real resiliency, which is the ability to take one step and then another step and then another step uh, towards what feels to you like like a new way of being that allows you to to not have a brittle armor, 
mm-hmm. you know, to not, to not uh, have to escape from your pain all the time. Yeah. Although sometimes we do have to escape from our pain. You know? I'm, a, I'm a great believer in judicious TV watching. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever helps. <laughs> Whatever helps, totally. Totally. And, and yet, it, if you keep coming back to the heart and you keep coming back to, to the vulnerable self, what, you know, the amazing miracle of our, of our vulnerability is that it is the doorway into, into the, the sacred essence of ourselves. I mean, you can't really find God inside yourself without finding, finding it through the, the doorway of your vulnerability. You know, and, and I do believe that, I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of qualities that, uh, that, you know, that make us resilient. And, uh, and one of them, of course, is the ability to, to just keep on trucking. Yes. You know, to keep on, to keep on doing it, even when you, you know, even when you're knocked on your ass and are, don't want to get out of bed. At some point, you just have to get out of bed. Yeah. So, but it's really the <clears throat> the ability to uh, to be strong without being brittle, without being masked, without being armored. That is that is real resilience, and um, and we find that step by step, and I think we find it through loss. Mm. It's very hard to to find our, our deep strength, our unshakable strength, mm-hmm. unless we've been through losses. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're you're uh, preaching to the choir, and I'm sure many people listening can absolutely relate. Um, I love that you said keep on trucking, because in my own life and many others I know, you know, speaking about addiction, um, I've relapsed, you know, many times throughout the years, and it's, you know, it's a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, pain, um, you know, all those negative things come along with that. Um, but through the years, and as I got more serious in my practice and my path, I learned that part of what kept me going back um, to picking up a drug or alcohol is the fact that I wasn't going to these vulnerable, raw places within myself and allowing myself to become vulnerable with myself. And once I started to do that and learn to lean into the pain, it's not that it made my life perfect and it's not that it stopped me from ever relapsing again but they happened significantly less frequently and when it did happen it was it wasn't two months it wasn't these long you know um just terrible downward spirals it would be a a much shorter what are you doing you know because because you you or i learn to really begin to love myself and have compassion and care and gentleness for myself and to find that resiliency you speak of to stand back up, you know, you have that decision to make. What am I going to do? Here I am in a pretty bad place. Either I'm going to go, keep going down that road or stand back up and pick myself back up and, and be vulnerable. And uh, thank you for sharing that. That's, that's so important. So important. It's so yeah. important. I was just thinking there's a story in that piece about a, a woman who was, she's on her way to, you know, she was like a senior in high school. Mm. And she was on her way to a, you know, a really good college. She was a writer. Yeah. Um, life was bright. She had a terrible car accident, but she had brain damage. Oh. And as far as I know, she's still dealing with the brain damage. But she she tells the story of how she how she dealt with having life as she knew it completely taken away. And one of the things that really moved me that she said was that what helped her was literature. Was you know was reading reading great novels and and reading about the things that the 
the heroes and heroines of those novels went through, uh, and identifying with them and realizing there was wisdom because she knew nothing about yoga or religion or, you know, philosophy even, but that there was so much wisdom in the way these, you know, great works of literature show you uh, it's possible for human beings. And I, I just found that very moving, that the clues to life, you know, in all its depths and all of its greatness are hidden in great literature. Mm. And for, for everyone who can pick up a book and pick up a Kindle yeah. and, and read. Right. And I, I'm sorry, I was just going to say, I love that you mentioned she might not have, um, you know, had an awareness or an interest in f- formal spirituality, but she still found it. You know, it's, it is available. So thank you for noting that, too. Um, I, we have a few minutes left and there was one thing I definitely wanted to talk to you about before we ended and cause it's relevant to the times, you know, we, the topic I wanted to talk about was compassion though. This, com- this final thing might go a, a different way, but here we are, you know, in the midst of a very troubling time within our country. Um, you know, what happened with Donald Trump, those leaked tapes that came out on Friday that were absolutely atrocious I don't know if you saw any of the debate last night, which was just a, you know, it, it makes me sad to be a U.S. citizen, the climate of where we are. And I, and I, you know, I find myself when he speaks and Hillary too, I, I have to admit that I'm not here to pro one, anti the other. Both of them have their faults. But I must say when it comes to Trump and his sexist remarks and misogyny and, and just, I could, you know, give you a whole list that you are already aware of. I feel it well up inside, you know, that frustration and that tension. So how, from your experience, how do we meet that with compassion? Or how do we meet those people holding those pro-Trump signs with compassion rather than screams of anger? What, what do you, what do you feel about that? Think about that. Well, I, I was, I'm, I'm reminded of something that a friend of mine told me the other day. She's, she's a very, very committed Hillary Clinton supporter. Sure. And, and you know hates Trump like uh, you know most of most of most of our cohorts tend to do. Um, and she said she was watching him on TV a couple of weeks ago, and she started to see the child, mm. you know, the the bombastic child that was speaking to him. And of course, you can see Trump that way quite easily because yeah. there's there is something kind of unmasked about him. He's so over the top. You know, he's so much like a like a showoffy. Ten-year-old boy, yeah, and but she said in that moment she loved him, and and I, I found myself that that in looking at people with the sense of okay, what is your story? What is what is your pain behind behind your mask of you know, uh, and all the ideas that you may have that I may feel are irrational or wrong or and certainly not in accord with mine. Where where is the pain in these people? You know, where is the goodness in these people? And and there's there's very few people, including <clears throat> among those you know sign waving, uh, you know, people at Trump rallies, that you can see that that there is that there is humanity in them, and they're they're speaking from pain. And I mean, my big beef with. Uh, the thing that really kind of gets me going is people who have a kind of smug, entitled ignorance about their own, you know, their own deservingness. Mm-hmm. And 
and you know, and want to keep other people from having what they have because they're so afraid it'll be taken away. Yeah. Uh, my own tendency is to be judgmental about that, and then to think about what it feels like to feel as though you could lose everything that you've worked for, or that there's no hope for you, yeah. and and to realize that almost all human beings have that feeling at some point. Yeah. Um, so those are that's the you know the way that I, that I that I open to compassion is very much the way the Dalai Lama talks about it, which is to realize that every human being wants to be happy. Every human being is suffering in one way or another. And and if you can find, you can get a sense of what they want or how they're suffering or what they have to say. And, and I, just to change the subject a little bit, sure. the thing that I've been seeing more and more in the last couple of years is how much everybody needs to be respected. Mm. You know, that, that more than compassion, what we need is to have respect for other people. Because if you really look at what, you know, what gets us going at a deep level is the feeling that we're not respected, that we're not taken seriously. Yeah. You know? and, I, and I do think that a lot of what people call Trumpism comes from that feeling of being disrespected that, that so many people in this country have. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I, I completely resonate with what you said. It reminds me of something I actually wrote in my second book where I was addressing the Westboro Baptist protesters at that time, but um, talking about how, you know, having gone through so much pain in my own life and knowing the nights where I would lie awake in bed, angry at God, just angry at the world, scared, it, it made it easier for me to put myself not necessarily in their shoes, but to try to understand their fear and their pain, different circumstances. But, you know, I imagine them laying down at night, going to bed. And even if they're not aware of it, the fear that they must be living with it, that, you know, invokes that kind of, you know, anger and, and hatred. Um, and when I look at it that way, just like you said, it does make it easier. I'm not perfect, but it does make it easier on a good day for me to meet that with a more compassionate, open heart and, and that respect. Um, because that, that is a big thing. So um, thank you for sharing that, Sally. You know, I think a lot of us really do confuse compassion with pity. Sure. Oh, yeah. And, and it, it, it just has to do with the fact that we are, we are naturally experiencing me here and you there and not, not necessarily feeling the true connection between us. I, I, I've found a few times in my life when I, my heart is open completely and I've experienced what I would call true compassion, mm. it's, a, it's a felt sense of, of literal oneness with other people. It's, like, it's not like I'm here feeling compassion for you right. or you there feeling compassion for me. It's, like, it's a realization that there's no difference between us, that we're all part of one fabric. So, you know, so your heart aches. For others, you know, you rejoice with others because they are part of your own being. And although obviously that's an ideal and a you know a, a high state that I personally have experienced at that level, um, you know, a few wonderful peak times in my life, but it's not my daily experience. Sure. Yet the re the remembrance, the recognition of that that as the truth, you know, that there is no way that I can separate myself. From you or my heart from your heart or or my my pain from your pain or my happiness from your happiness 
just to remember that is allows this the feeling of compassion which which is not it's not i'm i feel sorry for you or i'm going to try to empathize with you it's more like i'm you right right (laughs) no way i could not be you yes yeah that's beautiful and who is there to be compassionate in the first place if there's just this one thing happening yeah Yeah, i understand what you're saying and that said you know human beings do some pretty dumb things yes (laughs) guilty (laughs) (laughs) well sally thank you so much for your time it's been a real honor and a pleasure to share this conversation with you um, the website is sallykempton.com, which again, for anyone watching or listening, will be linked um, down below, as will Sally's book and, and audio program. Um, was there anything, Sally, that you wanted to leave us with uh, before we say goodbye? Uh, I would say that the, the one bottom line, which sounds like a cliche unless you're feeling it, but which is still the bottom line, is that all this is made of love and awareness. Mm. And that, that love and awareness is peeking out at us from every, in between every breath mm. and at the bottom of every word and thought, no matter how unloving it may seem. So just to remember that is, I think, enough for one life. <laughs> and Chris, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's really delightful to be with you and I thank you for the work you're doing, which is so gorgeous thank you the feeling is completely mutual and i really appreciate those kind words sally thank you This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.